We are in the middle of our series on living satisfied. How do we have this fully formed life of devotion to Jesus? Uh, You might think spiritual disciplines or something like that. Uh, And it is a big goal for us as a church that this year we would be growing in having a deep satisfaction and joy in Jesus alone. And we thought one of the main ways to do that is to each of us have this personal intentional plan on how am I being formed towards Jesus. Uh, And in the the great commandment that we read last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about how a devotion to God is holistic, that we love God with our heart, mind, soul, strength, and then we love our neighbors. In fact, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 12. He says the greatest commandment when he's asked, he gets tested. Uh, Some scribes come up to him, lawyers, and they say, hey, We know the law, really more like theological lawyers, uh, which those exist now somewhere. (laughs) Anyway, uh, more like a theological lawyer comes to them and is like, what's the best commandment testing Jesus? And Jesus says, oh, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind. And when Jesus says it, he's actually using an additional word that isn't in Deuteronomy. That's the one change besides the end that you also love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus adds this, that you would love God with your whole mind. Uh, One of our friends here in LA, uh, she's got like a doctorate. She went to fancy schools. She's a leader in the city, community. Really, really amazing, phenomenal person. She once told me when she found out I was a pastor, we're standing on the soccer fields, and she said, you know, I'm just so tired of feeling like every time I go to church, I have to check my brain at the door, like with my coat. And she was talking about this sense of there's this idea within the church that that knowing things and being smart is actually not good. It makes you worse at following God. Uh, Tim Keller frequently told church planters and leaders of people trying to start churches in cities like ours, he would often tell people that the first obstacle of non-Christians to becoming Christians, being able to believe, the, the first obstacle they have to get over is knowing that Christians can be smart people too. That's like what the first obstacle that they have to hurdle. Not that Christians can be nice, not that Christians can have fun, not that Jesus is good, but that you can be smart and be a Christian too. How did we get there? When Jesus says, love God with your whole mind. Uh, I believe that we've somewhat been made to think that all of our formation towards Jesus, all of our maturity and growth, is a emotional experience, or the practice of faith is just sensorial experience, or maybe to to grow into maturity is just physical, moralistic practice, like I abstain from these things and I definitely do those things, so I'm growing in maturity. And if we've done any sort of mental work in the church, it's to be able to know only the Bible, right? And that's all there is to know. Uh, and to know it just in the sidelines of the book, you know? It's like, well, I know the study notes, and that's the end. And, and actually, maturity is being someone who's like, I don't need to know a bunch of stuff, I just know God, which there's some good truth to that, and we'll talk about that later. But today, what I want us to look at is how do we love God with our minds? And, and what we'll see is three things. We're gonna see that we love God with our minds by learning about his world, uh, that we love God with our minds by thinking like he thinks, like having our minds conform to his mind. And then we love God with our minds by knowing Jesus. 
Uh, those are the, the ways that we love God with our minds. And at the end, I think we're going to be really encouraged. Some of us are going to be really challenged not to be smarter or to up our IQ points, but we're going to be challenged to give more of our thinking life towards God. So that's my, that's my hope. Uh, but first, loving God with your minds through learning, uh, which actually always leads towards worship. Proverbs 1, 7 says this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And, why, and this is a often quoted, it's funny, Proverbs is a long book, but these two lines are rec- repeated in some form over and over and over and over again. It's like half the book is some form of fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools don't like learning, basically. And the, the beginning of knowledge, it's saying, is that the, the first place to actually know anything is to come with this reverence and respect of God, that God exists as the, the very start of knowing anything. But on the, the contrast is fools don't like that. A foolish person despises it. Uh, Psalm 1110, uh, repeating Proverbs a little bit, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowing how the world works, uh, practical street smarts. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of street smarts, you could say. All who follow his precepts gain a rich understanding. So those who follow what he's saying, they're going to grow in a rich, deep understanding. And his praise will endure forever, it says. Psalm 19, 1-2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And it says, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they, the skies, the heavens, creation, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. What the psalmist is saying, besides it just being very poetic and beautiful about stars and stuff, he's saying that all of the things in the world are actually speaking and declaring and revealing over and over again God's glory. And I think implied in that, pretty explicitly to me at least, is a pursuit of learning and a using of our minds gives us two simultaneous benefits. One, it gives us a rich understanding of God. Like to learn anything that is true to learn how the, the sky is actually just chemicals up there and it's not blue and it's the way the sun is reflecting off of it, so we see it as blue. Any knowledge like that is actually a revelation of the glory of God. It, it gives us that, like an understanding of who God is. And then also learning produces lasting, enduring praise. Often we don't, it's, it's hard to praise God because we've minimized what God has created and we've stopped learning things about it. How do you have this unfolding, continuous praise of just the existence of God? It comes from actually knowing more and more things about the world, learning. Louis Pasteur, the father of bacteriology, this French guy, he's a chemist, microbiologist. His learning, his research is actually the foundation for all vaccines. Uh, He was the first person that created the vaccine against rabies, which is good. 
right? We all, maybe we, I don't know. <laughs> Vaccines used to be like universally, it's good not to die like old Yeller. But he was the father of vaccines. He studied, he knew all of these things. This is what he said. He says, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the works of the creator. And he says, science brings men nearer to God. Your mind was created with this immense capacity for language, for creativity, for thought, ideas, to even just be growing year after year. It was created for that. Why? Pasteur says, because it brings you closer to God. Uh, Paul, to the people in Athens, really smart, snooty people, he says, you are given all of this that you might reach out to God and that you might find him. Why learn that we might find God under the microscope or that we might see him through the telescope or in mathematics and equations? That in all of our learning, that all the learning that we do, we might see just the unfolding manifestation of God's glory in all of it. That we might seek him and find him. Wow, how is that possible to find God that way? I believe that every discovery, and this is what I think the psalmist is saying, every discovery is a discovery into the mind and the creativity and the intentionality of God. Every discovery, every mathematical equation that gets proved reveals the very character of God. Every microbe declares his praises night after night, day after day. Even every sociological study, all the history that we could study, this cool thing of neuroscience, all of it gives us this understanding of God and it produces lasting praise. Uh, there's a great uh, professor at the University of Notre Dame. His name is Mark Knoll. He's actually written some of the best, most accessible church history books you could ever read. So he has this one book called Turning Points. You should all read it. It's really short. It, it'll explain. You'll be like, ah, oh, that's church history. And you don't have to read a book this thick. It's like this thick. Anyway, Mark Knoll, professor at Notre Dame, he says this. He says the point of Christian scholarship, like learning as a Christian, is not recognition by standards established by the wider culture. The point of Christian learning is to praise God with the mind. Ultimately, intellectual work of this sort is its own reward. Because everybody else is trying to learn stuff for some other reward, like people think that you're smart, you get you know, prizes, you get the tassels around your neck, all of those things. But to the Christian, Learning has its own intrinsic reward because it focuses on the only one whose recognition is important, the one before whom all hearts are open. He's saying like, oh, we learn as Christians, not to prove that we're smart or anything like that, but just to know God. Learning gives us understanding of him and it produces enduring, lasting praise. But there's also a learning in what I read before with the Proverbs especially, don't be a fool. I like, that's what's so great about Proverbs. You know, you don't want to be a fool. You don't want to be Mr. T's object of pity, right? Or as C.S. Lewis calls them, slackers, in his book, Mere Christianity. He has this paragraph that's so dynamite that it's actually a little offensive to read out loud, where he's just like, don't be a child who doesn't know stuff. It's really intense, so I won't do that. But don't be an intellectual Slacker, that's the warning. Those people who despise 
knowledge. Uh, one thing is that Jesus doesn't give brownie points for being intentionally unengaged. Albert Einstein says it this way. He says, science without religion is lame, but religion without science is blind. Galileo, who had his own battles with the church as he looked into the heavens and was discovering these things about him, and then the church was like, no, we don't want to learn those things. Galileo says this, he says, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses and reason and intellect has intended us to forgo their use. It's pretty intense and dynamite. I think what, uh, if I could say his own words back in a different way, if God created us in the image of God with these abilities, not only is it foolish to say, I don't want to learn anything, it's actually a sin. It's a rejection of how you were made. In the same way, we're like, I'm not going to do these things I was created to do. I don't like how you made me, God. I don't want to learn anything. So be a learner. Uh, yeah, boom, convinced. Go to a museum. We have awesome museums in this city. If you're a library member, some days it's free. Read a book. Even on Audible, it counts. Engage a topic. Ask questions of your friends and neighbors about their expertise and just be curious. That, and keep asking and, and explore your own curiosities. Perf you know, pursue them. Study sociology or history or read a biography or watch a documentary. Uh, go to the Griffith Observatory and watch the planetarium th uh, video film that uh, Jared made just a few years ago. Actively sharpen your brain. I think that's what they're saying. Do a crossword puzzle. Do Sudoku. Play a game that involves your brain. Why? Because it belongs to God. So give it back to God. And as you do, you're going to see what he's like, and you're going to respond in worship and praise. You're going to join in on the skies and at night and pour forth speech of God's enduring glory. So that's the first, love God by learning. The second thing is that we can love God by renewing our minds and thinking how God thinks. Uh, Romans 12, uh, 2 says this. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. Paul is describing a renewal of the mind, a transformation of how you think and how you engage, not into a greater and greater like scholastic achievements, like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm a tenured professor now. Jesus and the kingdom of God works differently. The, the greater and the greater understanding is into the heart and the mind and the will of God. That you would be able to know like who God is and, and understand the exceeding worth of his world and see how he holds all things together. That you would think about the world the way that God thinks about the world. That you would have a mind of Christ, 
being transformed that way. A mind of Christ that's always focused on generosity and mercy and compassion and justice and forgiveness and the intrinsic value of all humans and all things, that mind that God has for the world, that you would be conformed to that, not the other thing, which is the warning that's also in this passage with loving God with your mind. You can be conformed into this world. And I don't mean like, you know, your friends were wearing Jenko jeans and now you wear Jenko jeans. You know, like throwback to the 90s. The big, anyway, that's how I was like, don't conform to the world and wear those baggy jeans. Not like that, but being conformed even more uh, sinisterly where the world views knowledge as a way to bolster yourself up, where you can use knowledge to isolate yourself, where you can use knowledge to put other people down. That's the pattern and the formulation of this world. So you can pursue learning, and instead of turning towards God and finding him in all that, you can turn towards the things of this world. Uh, Instead of worshiping Jesus, who holds all things together, you worship the things that he's holding instead of the one who's holding it all. Uh, Nancy Piercy, who is, you know, I just love her. I think she's the best and the smartest and the brightest. Uh, She's a philosophy professor as well. She says this. She says, the danger is that Christians do not consciously develop a biblical approach to any subject, and then we will unconsciously absorb some other philosophical approach. That's her summary of basically Romans 12 too, which is this idea that the danger is that we would approach uh, cosmology or even law or how to bake things or economics, and we would approach all of it not with this view of what does Jesus want to do with all of these things, but we would just settle on whatever the culture around us tells us to believe about those things. Uh, that that the, the study of nature just reveals to us that all life can be thrown away because it's just about whichever is more fit and strong and all of those things. Uh, we can adopt the, um, the understanding, of, well, all economics is about who can win and who can get the most, not like the heart of God, which says, no, all things are to be like given so that people could thrive and, and find peace and shalom. Like, that's a different economic mindset that God has. Uh, She goes on in this section of her book, Total Truth, to masterfully describe all of the philosophies of the world and their results, which include the minimizing and the reducing of human life, uh, a philosophy of despair, uh, a philosophy of bottom line consumerism, or of just the pillaging of the earth. And so what Paul says, and then Nancy reiterates, is don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but in all of that knowledge, be transformed into the mind of God. Submit your mind to him and his character. Allow his story to inform all stories that you engage in. And so this one is uh, the, the object, what should you do? If the other one is learn about the world, this is to actually study and learn about God. What is his words? What does he say? Give yourself to theology. A theological discipline, like to understand God, is not a professional's like, requirement. It's like, not just for professionals like me. Uh, allow the gospel to inform all that you learn in your field, in your expertise. 
Uh, Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? The Lord gives it. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So seek God with your mind. Depend on him. Humble yourself by needing God, especially in all of your pursuits. Ask the Spirit to guide you as you learn. Why? Because the Lord is the one who gives the the wisdom. It's from his mouth that any knowledge and understanding comes from. Uh, One of the best examples of how this all works is this woman named Joanna Eng, who is a brilliant computer scientist. Uh, She was an immigrant to Canada. She went on to become this like prominent AI, like artificial intelligence innovator. She has over 50 patents uh, all over the world. She was the head of IBM's research and development when they're all creating this artificial intelligence stuff that maybe some of us are terrified. But she researches and creates things for over uh, a decade. She was in charge of, at IBM. And she sums up really well what it looks like to seek Christ and his wisdom in her work. And this is what she said as she looks back at her her career. She says, I consider myself very blessed to journey a career path that aligns with God's design of me. I've never taken this for granted. To me, honoring him, my audience of one, with what he gifted me through the works of my hands and my intellect is a form of worship. So it never stops to intrigue me that the humbler and more insignificant I can be in my divine partnership with him, the more I experience the embodiment of his divine wisdom. And she goes on to describe it. Divine wisdom is way more intriguing than artificial intelligence. She says, mingling work and praying, waiting upon the Lord and receiving visuals, ideas, unusual perspectives to solutions that I knew were outside of my normal thinking framework. They've all together contributed in a very significant way to the formation of my patent portfolio. She says, I'm grateful that he truly has done immeasurably more than I could ever hope for or imagine. What she is saying is, is that her like submission to Jesus in her work, in the laboratory, in her like group of friends in the research that she's overseen that God himself has given her wisdom and understanding to do her entire career. This is the image of somebody who is seeing their mind renewed into him. Like there's this dependence and this humility that you actually don't see in that many tech talks that I've been to at least, where a person stands up, I haven't been to them, I watch them on YouTube where a person stands up and says, actually, the more insignificant I become, the greater like the outputs are because God has actually walked with me through all of those things. What if not only did we employ our learning to God or our learning as worship to God, but we also relied on God to renew our minds for the good of the world? That's a pretty phenomenal thing. Lastly, we learn... Uh, we, work, we love God with our minds by knowing Jesus. Isaiah and his prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 11 talks about how the spirit of knowledge and understanding and wisdom and strength was just going to rest on the Savior of the world. And then Jesus, you know, becomes an adult. Man, he had so much knowledge. Like, it's one of these fascinating things you can read the Gospels through the lens of 
Was Jesus a smart person? Uh, Was he in the know? He had a phenomenal understanding of politics. He had deep knowledge of the political, geopolitical environment that he was in. He also knew all the stuff about business, about storehouses and masters and keepers and taxes and wages. Like he could just talk, it seems like, all the time about those things, like he got an MBA or something. He had this knowledge of biology and agriculture, how plants grow, how seeds are fermented, how crops behave. I mean, he never went to school. It's pretty amazing. Like, he never, first day of, fo- of elementary school photo, he never had one of those. Not just because of the photos, but they didn't have schools. But this knowledge, how did he have this knowledge? He knew history. He had a living knowledge of the Father. He kept talking, I know the Father and the Father knows me. So he also had this whole renewed mind thing going. He also had this intense knowledge of the scriptures. He could open up the scrolls, read them, and say, actually, you've heard the scriptures taught this way, but this is the truth of the scriptures. He knew the Bible. He knew the story of God, how it all interacted. He knew how every single thing declared the excellency of God. And as he did his life, and as he taught, and as it says that he taught with authority, where people are like, we've never heard anyone teach like this, where it's as if he knows deeply how the world works and how I work. As Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and how it was this grand reversal that, you know, the world thinks that you get more and more power and then you get people to do stuff. Jesus is saying, no, no, the king comes and descends and gives away and serves and gets on his hands and knees. And that's how the world is made new. There was one group of people, though. There was many that followed him and that just soaked it all in. Then there was this one group of people that just did not like him at all. They didn't like this wisdom that he was sharing. They didn't like this understanding. They didn't like this knowledge. And Jesus would call them out over and over again. And the warning is, is that we could give our lives and to submit them to knowing Jesus, or we could become stones, like the people that rejected Jesus, the Pharisees. They knew like Hebrew, they knew Greek, they knew Aramaic. Uh, the, the people that were Pharisees were the prodigies of very young children. They were, taught, they were the ones that actually went to school with rabbis and they were taught all of these things. They had memorized the Old Testament. They had memorized the Talmud that goes alongside the Old Testament. They knew all the things. They knew about how politics works. They actually walked and talked to the political leaders. They were in those arenas. They were in the halls of powers. They knew all of that stuff. And yet, when Jesus comes in his full knowledge, they're like, we don't like that. uh, Jesus would say over and over again, they're like stones. They were like snakes. They were like serpents. They were fools. What that tells me this is that you can have a deep knowledge of God's stuff and not know God. And that's the greatest tragedy. For you, you know, there's no longer this place for God in the laboratory because you've mastered the laboratory. You know it all. There's no longer this place for God in the book or in the history because you're the critic over the history. There's no place for God in your thoughts. If there are places for God in your thoughts, it's for you to look down and to test them. I'm gonna test Jesus and see if he meets my standard. Why? Because you have it all figured out. That's how smart you are. You know more 
than God. When Jesus hangs on the cross to defeat sin, death, and evil and turn his suffering into our salvation from suffering, we stop checking his answers. We start submitting our lives to his answers. When Jesus comes to earth, he makes himself flesh, he walks among us. We put away testing knowledge of him, and we instead make way for personal knowledge of him. When Jesus comes out of the tomb alive and the foundations of the earth and all that we know about all existent is shaken to the core and that there's this reality of new life that comes out of death, we're no longer searching for answers and information so that we can look smart. Like that day's done after the resurrection. Now we're just looking into all realities, trying to see and understand, does this get raised to new life also? Oh my gosh, it does. That's the power of the gospel in our learning. I want to end by reading 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 26 to 31. And it's not on, so not on a slide, so you can just like listen to it. Just hear the words. Paul's writing about how the people thought they were wise, but they really weren't. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. But many of, not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There's this incredible, powerful kindness in the gospel. And this is for, you know, we're really smart people in this room. The kindness of the gospel is you're not saved because you're a genius. You aren't brought into the family of God because you scored really highly on an exam once. You aren't ushered into the mission of God because you have patents with your name on it or because you have diplomas that have really fancy seals. And it, this is so good, that what it's saying here. That you being made right, you being made holy, your entire redemption arc of your life, that whole story, uh, your entire restoration, uh, your place in this world and this kingdom is solely based on the merit of Jesus. Not anything you've ever done in a classroom, not anything you've ever done at work where you did something and, and in the meeting they said, wow, man, that guy's really smart. None of that gets you in. That's the kindness. That his wisdom was to die for sinners. His intelligence told him to sacrifice for people like us. 
without noble birth, with not the best test scores, like that's his intelligence. His understanding was to bring in the weak and the unknowing into the very fold, the center of God. And so let's take communion this morning, celebrating God and his mindset that was set on redeeming us and setting us free from this. I must prove how smart and competent I am to be worthwhile. Instead, we've been given the freedom of knowing God has redeemed me, rescued me, and now I just get to learn because I love the Father. So let's go and take communion. I'll pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for the realities that all of these scientists and smart people have spoken of and that we are just humble people. I pray that we can follow Joanna Ng's example and be people that co-labor with you and see our minds made new by you in our workplaces, that you would infuse your divine wisdom into all the things that we're asked to do, that your divine wisdom would fill us as we care for children, that your divine wisdom would fill us as we uh, work, as we come home, as we do things in the house, as we love neighbors. We, we depend on you to make our minds new. And we want to have a mind like you, Jesus, that says sacrifice, death leads to life, that we would treasure the power and the knowledge of your resurrection, and that that would be the preeminent thing that all other understanding falls under. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.